So if you take your Bibles and open to Isaiah chapters 24 and 25. If you're using the Bible in the rack in front of you that looks like this, that's on page 585. Page 585, Isaiah 24 and 25. If you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah 24 and 25. Behold, Yahweh will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be, as with the people, so with the priest. As with the slave, so with the master. As with the maid, so with the mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. For Yahweh has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For... They have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, languishes. All the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the street for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth amongst the nation, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy. Over the majesty of Yahweh, they shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to Yahweh. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away, I waste away. Woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitants of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. On that day, Yahweh will punish 
the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They'll be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They'll be shut up in a prison and after many days they'll be punished. And the moon, then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For Yahweh of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. O Yahweh, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you've done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, Yahweh of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he'll swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord Yahweh will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for Yahweh has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation, for the hand of Yahweh will rest on this mountain, and Moab will be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill, And he'll spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But Yahweh will lay low his pompous bride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You can be seated as we pray. Father, thank you for speaking. We don't have to guess what the Creator thinks or wants or has planned or is doing. But in order to really grasp it, we know we need the help of your Spirit. And so together we pray, asking for your Spirit to speak through your Word into our hearts and shape us. Open our hearts. Work through your word. Convince us of it. In Jesus' name, amen. You can't make something whole unless you've dealt with the root of the brokenness. I learned this lesson the hard way back over a decade ago when I was living in East Texas. 
I saw a small house in town that was listed for, I think it was less than $20,000. I said that right. And so I figured I could buy the house, fix it up enough that I could provide housing for people who might need to live in it, be able to be generous that way, and then if, if uh, there's any return on my investment, I, I, I'd make out all right. Now, when I went to see the house, it was evident that there had been a termite infestation and it had damaged a section of the floor. Well, I looked at it, I'm like, okay. So you get the house sprayed for termites and you repair the floor and you're good to go. But the realtor who was helping me warned me that was, the solution was not so simple because the house itself was built on a wood foundation. And if the termites had gotten to the floor, they'd almost certainly gotten to the rest of the support of the house. And so really, if you're going to want to fix the house, you're going to have to take it all the way down to its wooden foundation and rebuild it from the ground up. Not a proposition that would cost only $20,000. A proposition, rather, that was well out of my price range. Our passage this morning is a bit like that house. God's intent is to make the entire earth whole again. His intent, as we saw, is to wipe away tears, to take away reproach, to rebuild, to bring salvation. And this is the very thing that we long for in this world, isn't it? Our souls ache for the restoration of our world. We cry out, how long? As we wait for God to right wrongs, to allow peace and wholeness to prevail, to usher in a time marked by gladness, and joy. But we might, we might look at the situation like I looked at the house. Ah, it's in decent enough shape. I just need to spray some treatment on the wood, patch up the hole in the floor, and we're good to go. But our passage is a bit like that realtor telling us that such a perspective is a bit naive. You might have noticed that right out of the gate when I began in 24 verse 1. Behold, Yahweh will empty the earth and make it desolate. We need to tear this thing down and rebuild it from the ground up. The rot has spread everywhere. It's not just a problem with the priests and the masters and the lenders. Whatever the problem is, it's pervasive Verse 2, with the people as with the priest, with the slave as with the master, with the maid as with the mistress, with the buyer as with the seller, with the lender as with the borrower, with the creditor as with the debtor. Our world loves class warfare, doesn't it? Pit various demographics against each other. The working class can blame the management and the management can blame the workers. The rulers can blame the masses, and the masses can blame the rulers. 
But more to the point, I think, we tend to think that the real root of the problem lies elsewhere. What's wrong with the world is them. In 1905, the Daily News asked its readers, what is wrong with the world? And a prominent author, G.K. Chesterton, responded with three sentences, the final two reading. The answer to the question, what is wrong, is, or should be, I am wrong. Unless a man can give that answer, his idealism is only a hobby. Chesterton and Isaiah seem to be making the same point. The whole building needs to be torn down. And that's why verses 3 through 5 reiterate the total destruction that must come. But then, then as we, as we see that cadence of destruction, the cause for why we need to be destroyed is given. Did you see it at the end of verse 5? For, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. I don't think this covenant is a reference to the Mosaic covenant. I don't even think it's a reference to the covenant made with Noah because the results of this breakdown is an earthwide curse more reminiscent of what happened when Adam rebelled against the Creator. I think actually what's going on is a covenant, this co- the covenant being referred to as an applied relationship between the creator and the created. Look with me at Romans chapter 1. If you're using the same pew Bible, it's on page 939. Romans chapter 1. I'm going to pick up at verse 18, Romans 1.18 on page 939. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, all of humanity, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature 
rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. I think that's what's going on in terms of this violation of the law. This is what's clear and what we should know from the very beginning of creation. We have violated that and therefore a curse has spread to all. Now, I don't know what worldview you come into this building with. There are a lot of different worldviews represented here. But no matter what worldview you have, you have to answer this question. Why is the world broken? Why is it such a mess? How do we explain the macro and the micro evils and heartaches that plague us. So the Bible's explanation is simple. People have rebelled against their maker. We are, to use the language of Isaiah, transgressors, violators, breakers of the covenant. So the poison that's out there in the world that we all know is there is also here in my own heart. The wickedness that's out there in a mature form is here in my own heart in a sapling form. So all of us in our collective rebellion are the problem. And therefore, as the first part of six, verse 6 says, a curse has spread across the whole world. Therefore, as the second half of verse 6 says, God must raise the whole building in order to restore it. In other words, we can't long for wholeness and healing in this world unless we also long for a purging and a shaking. A purging and a shaking that must include even our own selves. So 24 verses 1 to 6 form a bit of introduction to this chapter, and I've treated it as such, but I want to give you a sense of how our whole passage breaks out. So the whole of chapter 24 is concerned with coming destruction, and the whole of chapter 25 is concerned with coming restoration. God is cleaning house He is judging and destroying, but he's doing so in order to restore and to rebuild. So I really want us to grasp this. Chapter 24 is a necessary precursor to chapter 25. Now, in a sense, chapter 24 could have just ended at verse 6. Yahweh's spoken the word. The restoration, restoration project will happen, which means the house must be cleansed. The demolition must begin. I, I remember um, when I was in the United States reading about a, a major organization there that had exposed all sorts of young people to abuse. And... Uh, 
an instance of this abuse would, would hit the news and, and the organization would make, oh, this is terrible, this is terrible, and they'd change some policy or, or remove somebody from their position and then inevitably a few months later or a year later or whatever, you'd hear another instance and another instance. And as, as, the, as the victims and their advocates piled up and piled up, there was a cry that was saying, no, we can't just do cosmetic changes There's a need for a cleaning house. The whole thing needs to be rebuilt. And so it is with God. God's judgment will shake us all. And Isaiah wants to drive this home. So he doesn't end at verse 6. He drives home the point with two separate kind of thrusts that are hitting it again. So that the... the, Verse 1 to 6 kind of make the point, and then verse 7 to 16, hit it again, and we'll call this section the end of song and celebration. 7 to 16, the end of song and celebration. And then there's the second thrust, verses 17 to 23, and we can call that the terror, the trench, the trap. I'll explain that when I get there. The terror, the trench, the trap. But through this whole chapter, I want all of us who are here to listen. God's judgment is coming. It's coming because of our rebellion against God and the damage that is done. So I want us to allow these these two follow-up sections to wake us up. I want to beg us to hear. I want want to plead with us to listen. So verses 7 to 16, the end of song and celebration. Back in verse 4, what was happening to the earth? You see it, mourning and languishing. And now in verse 7, Isaiah says, that will apply to our alcohol. The wine mourns, the the vine languishes. Why does he want to apply it to our alcohol? It's because the world is singing and partying. It's enjoying life my wicked heart, my rebellion against my creator, all the crud that's deep down in there, if I was really willing to examine it. No matter, I'm enjoying life to the fullest. Pour another glass of wine, waiter. Turn up the music, DJ. Let's keep having fun. The famed old singer Johnny Cash was known for always dressing in black, and he explained why it was that he always dressed in black. He said, I I would love to wear a rainbow every day, but he said he couldn't because the pain and the injustice in the world. So he wore black. See, the city of man is rotten to its core. Its stench is pervasive. And yet we're not always wearing black. We're out there partying. 
Man's city is rotten, and yet it's marked by revelry and mirth. And so Isaiah says that when God comes to visit us to restore all things, we will suddenly be sobered up. The flow of alcohol will stop and we'll realize how bad things are. We'll lock ourselves in our homes while the gates of our great city crumble. It's like the teenagers are parting at the house while the parents are gone, and they're in for a rude awakening when the police show up and promptly shut the whole thing down, rounding everybody up and bringing them to the station. Only in this instance, it's far worse. Because as we'll see, the judgment lasts into eternity. Everything we love and cherish in the city of our own design, it's going to come down and be left with nothing. The party is over. The song is done. But then, in verse 14, one song gives way to another. The songs of drunken revelry in the city of man fade, and another song rises. Verse 14, they lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of Yahweh. They shout from the west. Therefore in the east give glory to Yahweh. In the coastlands of the sea give glory to the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. In this dark, dark chapter, the prophet had to give us a hint just a taste of a greater song, the song we should be singing, the song that leads to true health, true wholeness, true joy, true pleasure. A song that isn't about me and what I want, my carnality, but is actually saying, no, when the good and righteous king is on his throne, when the righteous one is, is where he should be in our hearts, and we bow before him, that is where our wholeness comes from. So let us praise him. So to this church, and to all who are gathered here, it gives us a question. What song is our song? Which song most resonates in our, how, our hearts? A song of the city of man that celebrates our independence from God? Pursuing pleasure and comfort in our own little man-made ways? That's the song I most want to sing. That's the song nearest to my heart. Or the song that celebrates the glory of the righteous one? A song that knows that truest joy comes from our creator. Keeping him in his rightful place. Is that the song nearest to our heart? The first song, though loudest now, will die. 
it will end. But the lesser song, the second song, will one day rise, never to end. But in our passage, the sound of that higher and nobler song is quickly drowned out by the prophet himself. He felt compelled to tell of the better song, but he also can bear it no more because like the earth in verse 4, he himself is wasting away. And for the very same reason, the earth wastes away because of a broken covenant in verses 4 and 5. The prophet wastes away because we are traitors against against God. Look at verse, the second half of 16 when he, he says, I waste away, I waste away, woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed with betrayal. The traitors have betrayed. I mean, I think he's making a point. But the prophet doesn't stop in verse 16. He takes even another angle at driving home the terror of the coming destruction. And he actually uses a memorable little mnemonic device. It's there in verse 17. In Hebrew, it's pakad, pakat, pach. Those are three words, pakad, pakat, pach. Now, the ESV loses that assonance in its translation of verse 17, where it says terror and the pit and the snare. So that's why I've titled this section, I've tried to kind of recapture it with the terror, the trench, the trap. The terror, the trench, the trap, verses 17 to 23. When God comes in judgment, it will be a true terror. And some who hear of that terror will run, we're told. But they'll fall into a trench that God has dug to catch them. And then it says the few that manage to climb out of the trench will be caught in the trap. The imagery in verses 19 to 20 are like a cosmic earthquake shaking not only the earth but the heavens above. Creation itself will totter like a drunken man, shake like a little hut in the wind. And we're thankful for our well-built home. It's a solid brick exterior. But at night, when the wind gets howling, it can be a bit unsettling. You feel like, did the roof just blow off? Are the windows going to burst? Those fierce winds, it can be unsettling. But imagine the same in a little hut in the middle of an open field, (laughs) twigs and branches blowing off, rain leaking through the roof. That's what this earth is going to feel like when God visits it in judgment. Verse 21 tells us on that day, there'll be an eternal trench or pit that Revelation describes as a lake of unending fire. And all the heavenly hosts who've rebelled against God will be cast there. And all the earthly hosts and their kings who've remained stubborn in their rebellion against God will be cast there, ultimately meeting 
and eternal punishment. It says that even, even the great powers of the sky, the sun and the moon will be changed as they yield to the Creator God, the Righteous One, the Holy One of Israel. Yahweh has spoken. It will come to pass. Now, these chapters, chapters 24 and 25, also 26 and 27, get picked up repeatedly in the book of Revelation, so much so that this section of Isaiah is often called the little apocalypse. You got earthquakes, you got judgment, you got a pit or prison for the rebels in heaven and a pit or prison for the rebels of earth. You have the changing of the sun and the moon. The same will be true we see in chapter 25 where you see echoed in Revelation the celebratory feasts and tears being wiped away. If that's the case, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that the last line of chapter 24 is also echoed in Revelation. There in Revelation we see God seated on a throne in the new Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Elders seated around him reigning. That day is coming. I also think it's interesting that chapter 24 follows chapters 13 to 23. Because as we were working through that section over and over again, God was telling those nations from Babylon to the coast of the Mediterranean, from Edom to Israel herself, that they were going to face judgment. And sure enough, as Isaiah foretold, Assyria would conquer them all, and it wouldn't be pretty. But it was interesting, as we read through those sections, that section 13 to 23, the prophet kept hinting that this was about something far bigger than 700 B.C. All that they were going through was a mere taste of the things to come. And now he makes that really explicit. Yeah, Assyria has conquered you, just as I foretold, but that is nothing compared to the close of the age when Yahweh himself comes and he conquers. You think it's terrible to be a Ukrainian under Russian military control? You think it's terrible to be a non-Arab in Sudan? under the Janjaweed control? Yeah, but it will be far worse for rebels against the Creator when He returns to restore all things. Not because He's evil like Assyria or how the Russian military are behaving or the Janjaweed. Rather, He comes in justice but it's because we're evil. He's going to deal with the root of the problem. What's the root of the problem? As G.K. Chesterton told us, I am. I am a transgressor. I am a law violator. I am a breaker of the covenant. I am a betraying traitor who is betrayed. 
So this, this is where the sickle will swing. You cannot make any mistake about it. The terror will come, and those who flee it will be met with the trench. For those who escape the trench, it's the trap. We have been warned. But the story of Scripture does not end there. Revelation does not end there. And Isaiah does not end there. God is coming in judgment in order to restore. He tears the foundation. He tears down to the foundation to build something good. He cleans house because he wants the institution to be whole and healthy. And so if chapter 24 is about coming judgment, chapter 25 is about coming restoration. Now, if you were the prophet trying to transition from one to the other, how would you do it? Would you be on the one hand, on the other hand? Or, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Maybe you go something like that. You probably wouldn't have thought of a prayer. A prayer voiced from the vantage point of someone who has seen the judgment and how it actually paved the way for restoration. I wouldn't have thought of that. That's how the Holy Spirit inspired Isaiah to make the transition. So in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 25, there is a prayer. A prayer coming from someone who trusts Yahweh that he, that, that person could pray after seeing the great city of man come to its final end. So in verses 1 to 2, it praises God because he's brought a final end to that awful city. And the end of that awful city is good news for everyone. Because God's new reign is good for everyone. The new and better sheriff is welcomed by all. Some of the old enemies have come around. We see that in verse 3. But, and I think the emphasis those most hurt by the brokenness of the world also find relief in God. You probably noticed that when I read verses 4 and 5. Do you see them? Verse 4, the poor, the needy in distress, those in the storm or in the heat. That's who God is particularly a relief for. Those who were the storm blasting people against the wall. Those who were the heat wilting people in the desert. Some of them will end up being worshipers. But in a certain way, they're not in the same need of relief. Now, we've seen both the creditor and the debtor are complicit in sin. Both the oppressor and the oppressed are in rebellion against God. In God's new restored world, some of the oppressors and some of the oppressed will both together be worshipers. But all of them will be particularly grateful for a God who protects the needy and the vulnerable and the oppressed. They'll be glad for a God who is just, who's true. So 
So the same prophet who was wasting away because of the traitors and the judgment that comes upon them is now giving voice to a post-judgment prayer of praise to the God who rescues and delivers. The old corrupt city will be done away with. The new, better city will be a cause for great praise. I know some of you are here feeling how poor or needy or in distress you are. You know exactly what it's talking about when it says being betrayed, sorry, being battered by a storm or being wilted by the heat. And I want you to know this morning that God sees you. He counts your tears. And this prayer, this very prayer from verses 1 to 5, will be yours one day if you're in Christ. You can even pray it now in anticipation of that day. So Isaiah's lament from 24, verse 16, gives way to this prayer in 25, 1 to 5. The end of song and celebration from chapter 24 gives way to a new song and celebration with the rest of chapter 25. Now, we don't actually see the song itself until chapter 26, which Matt will be preaching on next Sunday. But we see the new celebration in chapter 25, verses 6 to 12. The party is getting started. It's a totally different kind of party. It's not pagan revelry emerging from a city built in opposition to the Creator. So it's not dependent on drunkenness and pleasure to distract us from the rampant pain and brokenness and injustice all around us. This is not an anthem of me. No, this is a, a party, a feast laid out by the creator God. And it's gold to their tinsel. It's steak to their spam. It's Merlot to their Coors Light. It's a party that doesn't leave you hungover. It's a feast that satisfies why? Because it's built on a truer foundation. The rod of injustice and rebellion and self-rule is done. Instead, it's built by Yahweh of hosts, and it's spread for all peoples and all nations. It's a meal for Arabs from Iran, for Latinos from Mexico. For the indigenous from the Six Nations, for Jews from the Holy Land, for Caucasians from England, for ancestors of slaves and ancestors of enslavers. It's for everyone. You see that at the end of verse 6? Feasts of rich food. Sorry, not at the end of verse 6. Beginning of verse 6. On this mountain, Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples, a feast of rich food. Verse 7 talks about how he's removing shameful coverings, which is an image, again, similar to Adam and Eve 
after they sin, trying to cover themselves, our shameful veils will be removed. In other words, our sin is going to be dealt with. And verse 8 talks about how death itself will be conquered. Not just sin, but the byproduct of sin, death, gone. Conquered in the new and restored city God will usher in. And if sin and death are gone, it also means tears will be gone. Not tears of joy, those will probably still flow. But no more mourning over death. No more tears from strife or heartache. But I like how it words this. It doesn't just say there's no more tears, does it? It says the Lord Yahweh will himself wipe away those tears. There's a tenderness to our Father. He sees and he cares. He knows our pain. And he will one day wipe away those tears. Verse 8 says he'll take away the reproach. It could be very broad, but I especially think it refers to a reproach that comes from hoping Yahweh's promises and being mocked for doing so. Sort of like Noah had his reproach taken away when the flood eventually came. Now these are beautiful and hope-generating verses, but they seem a little at odds with chapter 24. Sure, one paves the way for the other, but what about for us? What is it going to be? Is God going to come in judgment and cast us into a forever trench, a prison of a pit? Or is he laying out a feast for us, conquering death, defeating sin, wiping away our tears? Or maybe there's a different way we could put it. Who gets the one and who gets the other? I think that's part of why verses 9 to 12 are there. First you see who's saved in verse 9. And be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. In other words, it's for those who patiently waited for God's salvation, who trusted his promises, who put their faith in him and waited and hoped. But there are others, even in this beautiful restoration passage, who are enemies of God and his people, typified by Moab, who will have their pompous pride ruined. I was talking about this passage with my kids ahead of time, and they really love the image there in the end of verse 10 and verse 11, where... Moab, this great city, is pushed down into a dunghill and is swimming in it. That's the kind of humiliation that God is going to bring upon Moab, their pompous pride ruined. So you have one waiting and hoping in God's promises and salvation, and you have another who's like, I can do this, working on our own salvation and opposed to God, not under him. Humility, Pompous pride seems to be the distinction. So we who claim Christ, 
Which better describes our heart? Humility or pompous pride? And those who are listening who don't claim Christ, will you come? The feast is spread for you. There is a better celebration, a better song than anything this world can sing. I want you to join in hoping in God's promises and humbly waiting for our salvation. (laughs) These two chapters are true. It's true that the house is rotted down to the very foundation and God is going to build a new and better house. He's going to rip it down to its foundation and build it anew. So how can rebels like us be part of the new house? How can the new house be any different from the first? If I'm there still, won't it rot all over again? Aren't I the termite? These are actually important questions to the prophet Isaiah. And they're questions that he will build up. He'll answer in a building up sort of way as he lays out what we've called his Isianic clues. Clues that point to a rescuer coming from the line of David. Clues that point to a better king that can rule us. Clues that point to a warrior who's able to defeat the nations. Clues that point to a lamb who can take our sins upon himself and allow us to be forgiven and restored. Clues that ultimately point to Jesus, the Messiah, who would die on a cross for you and for me and who will return one day to usher in the fullness of his kingdom. You see, before the house is torn down and rebuilt, Jesus came and died for us so that all who trust in him can escape the terror, the trench, the trap, and instead enjoy a feast of joy and laughter for all eternity. So come to him and give thanks for him. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you'd help us all to hear the good things you have planned for those who humbly wait in your promises and the destruction that comes for all those who maintain their rebellion against you. Give us no rest as we consider these truths.